Hey, everyone. I am your host, Kevin Sullivan, and this is the Wait What If podcast. I did it backwards this time. That was weird. Usually I say the Wait What If podcast, and this is Kevin Sullivan, but um, whatever. doesn't matter. Tonight, we have Chris Bell. He is an American director, producer. Um, he made the movie Bigger, Stronger, Faster. If you're not familiar with this uh, flick, it's really, really good. It's a documentary about... Uh, I, I mean, it's about steroid use, but it's not. It's about... I guess, being a kid who grew up in the 80s, um, who who was inundated with this idea that to be an American man was to be bigger, well, as the title says, to be bigger, stronger, faster. Um, and the pressures to actually, you know, be the superheroes that we grew up watching, He-Man, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger as, well, whatever, any of his characters, um, Sylvester Stallone as, as Rambo, or, or again, any of these characters. Anyways, it's a really, really cool um, documentary, and I suggest you check it out. Everyone has Netflix, so just pick it out tonight and do Netflix and, and watch Bigger, Stronger, Faster. You won't, you won't regret it. It's a great flick. He also did one called Trophy Kids. Um, that one really pissed me off a lot. Not that the, the, the movie was great. He did a great job, but uh, it focused on parents that really, really pushed their kids in athletics. And um, being a parent myself now, whenever I see uh, any sort of struggle with kids, uh, it, it makes me, I don't know, it, it really pulls emotions out and uh, things that, that I guess if I had watched that film uh, 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, it wouldn't have bothered me. But um, and I guess that's the point. That's the point of making movies. You got to try to uh, touch your audience. So um, that was Trophy Kids, another good one. And then Prescription Thugs, which as a medical provider, uh, Prescription Thugs really reached out to me. So there's this issue, all right? If someone hurts themselves, I can write them a prescription for um, opiates, which are extremely potent uh, drugs that are, are, are extremely, extremely addicting. And that is a responsibility that Whew, it's, you know, there's two things in my medical career that I, I get really worried about. One of them is antibiotic resistance, and the other one is writing a prescription for someone that could turn around and make them an addict. And, um, and it happens, and it happens a lot, not with me, but in general, it happens a lot. So he, he uncovers a lot of um, uh, issues in prescription thugs, so I would suggest checking that one out too. Chris obtained his Bachelor's of Arts in Film Production from the University of Southern California. He is a resident of California. He founded the film production company Bigger, Stronger, Faster, Inc., which is devoted to producing educational documentaries, films, and TV shows. Um, yeah, I can't say enough uh, good things about this guy. Really cool. Um, plus, he does ketosis and stuff, so I'm going to talk to him about that um, Hey, I have a question. Have you had a chance to go over to waitwhatif.com and check out the website? On waitwhatif.com, all my guests' bios are on there. Not to mention there's links to the products that I talk about or uh, links to articles or studies or, or whatever we talk about on the show. I try to get up on waitwhatif.com. I've changed some things around. There's some links to some other projects I'm, I'm working on, so you can check those out there. And um, there's contact information and uh, just everything. So uh, if you're interested in the show and you're interested in supporting the show, head over to waitwhatif.com. Oh, and here's a little added bonus. There's a little link there called the Wait What If Affiliate. I think it's the Amazon Affiliate link. If you click on that and then do your shopping or whatever that you're going to do and then and then 
you know, within 24 hours, I guess, of clicking that link, I get credit for sending you over there. Now, here's the cool part. You spend no extra money, yet I get credit for sending you there, and they give me a commission. And that helps me get equipment and pay for hosting and do all that stuff with this wonderful podcast and then to do all the other, uh, uh, wait, what if, projects that we're doing off of this. So uh, if you're a fan of the show, thank you, thank you, Thank you for checking out my show. Um, and if you have a chance, head over to waitwhatif.com and check out the site. And if you feel like, I don't know, buying some uh, potato chips or perhaps some shoes or even a kettlebell, go to my affiliate link and uh, help out the show a little bit. You're listening to the Wait What If podcast. <laughs> first thing i want to talk to you about uh which i i i hadn't seen you i guess since your your uh either was what was your last one it was a trophy kit no it was prescription thugs um prescription yeah. yeah uh and and i when you sent that video the first thing i noticed was you have trimmed up you have uh leaned out quite a bit um, I found out that you're doing keto. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I've been doing that for about a year and a half now. Okay. And that's, you know, really helped me sort of like both mentally and physically help me uh, basically uh, control my food intake and mm-hmm. sort of control my uh, my relationship with food. It sort of uh, made things a lot better, a lot, you know, a lot more natural. And yeah, um, yeah it's just sort of helped help with control a lot, you know, it's sort of the main thing. Did you have a, a trainer turn you on to that or a doctor? Well, no, actually, I've been doing keto for, um, so back in 1994, I started doing a ketogenic diet for powerlifting. Yeah. And uh, just to, like, to get down in a weight class. Okay. And, um, you know, the problem with that was, uh, you know, you lose some strength when you, when you do a keto diet. But the diet I was doing was mainly like red meat and water, so I didn't really lose much strength. It was just basically steak and water right. uh, every day. And I, you know, I was young, so I didn't know anything about it or like why I was doing it. And I did that for a while, and then um, you know, to keep my weight down over the years for like the next ten years or so, I sort of did a keto diet, and I stayed around like two hundred pounds, pretty lean, pretty strong. Um, I was competing in powerlifting and, and things like that. And then, um, I don't, I don't know when, but like around maybe 2006, like, you know, a little bit after I was, when I was finishing up bigger, stronger, faster, um, my hips started to hurt really bad. Um, I couldn't really squat or deadlift anymore. I couldn't really train the way I wanted to. And, um, things just started to go south. And when they started to go south, um, the rest of my health went with it because, you know, I started drinking a lot and I Mm -hmm. just stop stop caring about everything really um when you have something that you love like lifting weights and it's taken away from you oh yeah and, uh, and you don't have it anymore it's really difficult you know yeah. so that's sort of where where i was left at was like i had this thing that i loved and i got taken away and then um i just decided to uh you know get back to it after i you know i, I he saw prescription thugs like i went to rehab and everything and um, had this double hip replacement surgery and sort of got through that. And then, 
had this sort of epiphany that I could have, you know, make sort of a Rocky like comeback <laughs> yeah. and, um, you know, not maybe achieve what I've achieved before, but, um, to be able to like lift again, like I just competed on powerlifting meet recently, okay. um, at my brother's gym and that was fun, you know, yeah. just to sort of get back into doing some of the things that I used to do, um, you know, before. Yeah. But yeah, so like keto was something that I returned to, like, like I said, like for a long time, I had gone away from that and I was drinking every day and stuff. And I, had, I had gained a lot of weight. I weighed like about 260 pounds, um, when I went to rehab and, um, right now I weigh about 198, pretty lean. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I, I, I treat a lot of, um, obesity. Um, it's just kind of, it wasn't my you know, I didn't go into medicine to do that. It just kind of, I just started noticing that all my patients were either overweight or obese and yeah, well. yeah. And they had all the issues going along with it. You know, the joint pains, the diabetes, the high blood pressure, the heart disease, and probably about, I want to say maybe the last four years, I kind of, kind of got an unofficial degree in nutrition and, uh, I discovered ketosis, which is, which is bizarre because, you know, I, I was formally trained in medicine and it, it had yeah. never come across as this could be something that we could do. We could, you know, alter our nutrition, kind of wake up these ancestral genes and and improve the quality of lives of people without having to go to, to medications. So well, it's, it's interesting because we've, we've only destroyed that recently. You know, we've destroyed it in a, in a few short years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, you know, you say you go back to these ancestral eating patterns, but it wasn't really that long ago when people used to eat the right way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's like a hundred years ago, people used to eat the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, we just didn't have medicines and other, other things, but, um, as we started processing more foods, uh, we started making things worse for people. That's right. The more convenient, you know, it's unfortunate, but the more convenient things get, usually the worse off it is for you. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And we're, we're suffering the consequences. I mean, this is like the first generation of kids that, may not live as long as their parents. And that's, that's unbelievable. Yeah. And we're seeing it every day. We're seeing people have heart attacks at young ages. Like mm-hmm. we're, we're just seeing a lot of people, you know, dying at young ages and uh, people want to point to like, you know, Oh, we need like a plant-based diet. But I, you know, I would argue that the foods that are overeaten are plant-based. Yeah. You know, they're all made of flour. Sure. And yeah. Sugars. And that's, what's overeaten. It's not that meat is overeaten necessarily. Um, but when you're eating, you know, uh, processed meats and meat in combination with um, all this other garbage, you're going to cause a lot of trouble. So that think, was, um, well, I was just going to say that that's amazing. Back in, in 94, you actually figured this out. Did you, um, was it, did you read about it or, or how did you end up well, going that route? Yeah. So I, um, Back in 94, I had moved to Los Angeles from uh, Poughkeepsie, New York. Mm-hmm. And when I moved to L.A., I went to uh, Gold's Gym and uh, immediately was uh, asking, you know, hey, where are the powerlifters at? And somebody was like, oh, it's those guys over there in the corner. And it was uh, Mike O'Hearn, who's a bodybuilder, who mm-hmm. also was like American Gladiators and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, Mike O'Hearn and um, this guy, Ron Fedko. And um, Ron Fedko was getting his uh, PhD at UCLA. He was an assistant professor at the time, and he was a powerlifter. He was really smart. So, um, you know, he immediately said to me, like, hey, you know, uh, what what weight class are you or whatever? I was, like, 240. He's like, ah, you're way too fat. He was just, like, really point blank and blunt. 
He's like, yeah, you're too fat. He's like, you need to be, uh, you need to get your weight down. And I'm like, well, what do you want me to get down to? And he's like, 198. And I was, you know, 242 at the time. So for the the next meet, he wanted me to do a diet. And basically the diet that he told me to do was red meat and water. <laughs> and uh, and he wasn't joking when he said it. He said, you know, I don't even want you chewing a stick of gum. I just want you sticking to this. And I was I was young at the time. I was like, you know, 19 years old or 20 years old. So I just stuck to it. And um, literally ate nothing but ground beef and drank water for, you know, two weeks. And I made my weight class and I won that competition. And that was like a big meet. It was like the California State Championships. So I went to the following competition um, all the way down at 198. So I went from uh, 242 down to 220, down to 198. And I won that meet also um, at that weight class. So I just knew I was onto something. You know, yeah. I knew that. I found like a diet that works for me. Uh, I have to say that it worked a lot better when I was younger. Like when you're in your twenties, um, you know, I think a ketogenic diet is like a miracle. Um, but I wish I would have known that and sort of stayed on it the whole time. And if I had like advice to give to younger people that are trying it, it's like stick with it, you know, because I wish I was doing it the whole time. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just started doing it cause I, I had my, my patients doing it. And so in January I, I've been paleo for a while and I was like, you know what, uh, I, I'm just going to, cause, cause you know, I, I was, I got kids and everything. I was cheating, you know, eating crap that shouldn't be eaten, even though I was, pa- to, you know, I put air quotes paleo and I just, yeah. I was putting on weight slowly cause I'm 40, I'm 41. And it was really between that 38 and 41 where, uh, it's just harder. It's harder to keep muscle mass. It's harder to do all that stuff. And yeah. So, and, and it's like, you're right. Like as you're, you're doing like your air quote paleo thing, I, mm-hmm. I felt like I was doing that with keto for a while where I was like, I don't know, like I keep cheating here and there, like not cheating bad, even off the diet, but like just cheating for what I, you know, what I know is from being strict. And that's when I decided to kick it up a notch. So for the past two months, I've been doing the carnivore diet, which is actually just all red meat. Basically. Is that, so, is that Dr. Baker? Sean, is it Sean Baker or? Chris Baker or something like that. Uh, yeah. Dr. Sean Baker. So what's interesting is like I said, I was doing the red meat and water diet mm-hmm. 20 years ago. Well, back in 94, more than 20 years ago. Um, yeah. That's sort of the new craze again. Now is yeah. the red meat and water diet. Right. So it's like, I ended up reverting back to something that I did a long time ago. Um, but yeah, that's what I've been doing that for the past um, two months. Um, it's kind of weird. I, I've been getting a lot leaner. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, my joints feel good and everything, my weight's stable, but I haven't noticed, um, that much of a difference. I've just noticed that I'm, I'm stronger and I feel like, you know, I feel like I'm in better shape, you know, but I don't feel like, uh, I don't feel like it's any miracle difference from keto to tell yeah. you the truth. I, um, I noticed cause I, I like to, to lift, but I, I come from a wrestling background versus, um. Uh, power lift or anything like that but i still i mean it's just something i always like to do and i i noticed when switching to keto that you know after what i would consider a typical workout i, I was shaken you know my body was just beat up uh versus you know it almost felt like i had gone harder than i did uh and i think it's just a, a case of just expending all that glycogen and not not replenishing it so having your body having to break down protein for sugar or, or the glucose to then replenish it's it, it's just it was it was a big difference yeah yeah absolutely yeah it's a, it's a big change for a lot of people a lot of people uh they don't like it in the beginning you yeah know, i know like people yeah. that start keto get um 
what they call the keto flu or the right. sick. Right? What and, I'm wor- um, that's just your body changing over, you know? Yeah. What I'm worried about is that here's the big thing, right? So I see benefits with my patients, either them going whole foods or keto or whatever, but I'm afraid that, you know, you're going to start seeing it on, on, uh, I don't know. The, the, the I was going to say the Oprah show, but I'm pretty sure it's not on anymore. Uh, but you know, daytime TV, and then which isn't a bad thing. I don't mind when people learn about this stuff, but yeah. it's going to get labeled a fad, and then doctors, yeah. my colleagues, going to start dismissing it, and then the benefits of this are going to just be thrown out the window because people will believe what they're told. They're going to be told that this is just you know another Atkins or another Zone diet or something like that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's been around for so long it's interesting, like what we call fads or what we call, you know, like I said, I've been playing around with this since 1994 and we're today calling it a fad, you know, yeah. <laughs> 25 yeah. years later. Well, I mean, our ancestors too, if they took down yeah, an I mean, elk, yeah. that's what they ate. <laughs> yes. And I'm not the first one to do it. Yeah. There's a lot of people before me that were doing it. A lot of people wrote books about it that I read back then, like guys like Dan Duchesne and stuff that wrote books about it back then. So, yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I think that it's been dismissed a lot already mm-hmm. um, by a lot of critics. I think um, some of the main people in the business, like Dominic D'Agostino, mm-hmm. Dr. D'Agostino dim- dismissed it at first because he had, it comes from a, a bodybuilding background. He's got a pretty good tolerance to carbs. He's always been pretty lean. Yeah. And um, he's like, ketogenic diet, that sounds stupid. Why would anybody do that? <laughs> and then, um, you know, he was doing some nutritional studies on divers yeah yeah for the oh if they went into ketosis they don't have seizures Mm -hmm. and they go down a certain you know depth with a certain breather and um by just figuring that out you know he started doing it himself which is just funny how like a lot of people dismiss this in the beginning but uh, i think the results will always justify the method you know Mm -hmm. what they say so um when you have results and you you know you're gonna see um so like for example your patients like uh, the biggest source of joy for me is just helping people. Um, and it's what I try to do with my documentaries is just try to put out, you know, good information and let people know about things. So when, uh, we had the power lifting meet a couple weeks ago, my cousin, Steven, he was scheduled to come out for a visit and, um, we've been trying to get, you know, help him like lose some weight for quite some time and, um, just help him. He's always had a high blood pressure. He was actually a candidate for a special surgery, for high blood pressure that's like very rare um and you know he's got kids and everything and you know he's like 45 years old so you worry about him you know like well shit he's 280 pounds and mm-hmm. you know he needs to lose weight and um so when he came out uh it was kind of interesting because he had torn his bicep uh while training for this competition that we were going to do um he tore his bicep and it ended up being a blessing in disguise because he just hung out with me the whole time mm-hmm. and by hanging out with me, I was doing the carnivore diet and, um, I was with Dr. Baker actually had come to super training gym, my brother's gym okay. uh, up north. And so it was all like a perfect storm. So my cousin was here the whole time. Dr. Baker was there and, um, we just talked the whole time. My cousin went from uh, 283 pounds. This is only like a month ago he was there yeah uh my cousin went from like 283 down like 237 right now and like his liver um enzymes that were always high are now like you know normal his blood pressure that's always been high is now normal his doctor is a uh, a weight loss doctor and she can't believe 
the results he's getting yeah. off of just you know just eating red meat. And uh, I think a lot of people are shocked, but uh, I think a lot of people also need to know that if you you know if you look at red meat and the profile of beef, pretty much has everything that you need to sustain life in it. Besides maybe um, enough vitamin C, they say, but yeah, yeah. they say it even has enough of that to you know to keep you keep you going. Yeah, the the vegan heads are exploding right now. I'm gonna I'm gonna get yeah. from it, but <laughs> you know it's the thing. It's like you, um, I don't know. You know, there's there's a whole different um, argument for whether it, that's sustainable or yeah. whether that's like you know, yeah. If everybody started eating like meat like that, what what would happen? But you know, what if the people just with arthritis started eating meat like that to get rid of their arthritis? Or what if you know certain people, certain sectors started eating like that? Um, I, I think we can justify it to say like, Hey, look, if, um, somebody's going to suffer a lot less and not have to take medication, be addicted to pills and things like that. Um, yeah, go ahead and eat meat all yeah. day. I don't see a problem with it. You know, there's a, um, uh, Dr. Nina Teichholz, I believe is her name. Uh, she's, she's big into meat. She actually came from the, I don't know if she was vegan, vegetarian. She came from that, that side of things and then began yeah. studying the sustainability of of meat and she's like look at we we have all these uh artificial you know so like when you look at a giant factory farm and you're looking specifically at vegetables it's not a natural thing acres and acres and acres of the same plant with chemicals that are in the soil it's not good but then you turn and you look at a pasture of cows and and for the longest time we were saying that they're destroying the environment or whatever but here's meat that's grown you know, from eating grass, from drinking water, and and basically coming from the power of the sun, so it's actually yeah. a very sustainable thing. You just have to. It, it it takes. I don't know if it would be. I think just like anything, over time, you know, the paradigm's going to shift. At least I hope it's going to shift. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the stuff is shifting now. Like even with the, uh, you know, nobody wants to see their animals slaughtered inhumanely. Yeah, I don't think I don't think any of us. I don't think any of us are voting for that. So like when you see videos like that that are disturbing, like I applaud those videos. Like, yeah, put those out there and get rid of those people. They're scumbags. They, they don't belong. Yeah. They don't belong. You know, I don't want them processing my meat, you know? Yeah. So, uh, when I see videos like that, it makes me angry too. And it makes me want to fight against that. And I'm just as much on board with fighting that as they are. So I don't want it to go away. I just want it to, I want it to be humane and I want it to, uh, you know, protect uh the animals and have them live out as good of a life as they can you know like we, even some of the stuff is sickening when it says like cage-free chickens um to even say cage-free they only need to keep the cage open for like five minutes a day oh, and it's man. like a gigantic cage and they just have this little tiny door that they have to keep open for five minutes a day to let some sunlight in and they're considered cage-free eggs and like i think that kind of stuff is disturbing like we need to be more honest and transparent with the farming and the way that the food is raised. Yeah. Well, it's, it's such a disconnect, you know, today too. Uh, you go out and you just fi- buy a lump of meat. I mean, that's all it is. There's no feathers, there's yeah. no skin, there's no, uh, so yeah, it, it, it allows you to be, you know, uh, part of that, you're, you're, that process. Yeah. You're detached from it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, it's not like we grew it or anything. You know, I, I would love to, um, do what like Joe Rogan does. He goes out and hunts his own meat and yeah. does all stuff. And like now, the only thing he eats is like what he kills. And I, yeah, I like that. That's great. 
I like that idea. I just, I have no idea how to hunt. (laughs) I I don't live anywhere near anything to go hunting. Like it just doesn't seem like it would be viable for me right now. Yeah. Um, but I definitely like the idea of it. Yeah. That's, he's got a good, uh, a good outlook, uh, at least a program, uh, that he sticks with. So, um, my show doesn't really focus on the what. I mean, I, I do interview a lot of people that either make films or write books or whatever, and that's fine. I think it's kind of the easy way out to just discuss whatever works that the people worked on. What I, what I try to focus on is the why, you know, why, why we do the things that we do. So you were a, uh, from Poughkeepsie, and then you found yourself as a really successful Hollywood director. How'd you go from being a, a kid uh, who was a weightlifter to... Uh, you know, someone that you can go and, and find them on Netflix. Yeah, it was kind of a weird, wild journey, but um, and, it, and it wasn't overnight. You know, they say every overnight success is like 10 years or something. Yeah. And that's kind of exactly how long mine was. I came to L.A. in 1994 um, to actually I won a contest for I was um, I didn't do very good in high school. I was always like the kid that was screwing off and not paying attention. I didn't really get good grades. Mm-hmm. So I was just, you know, I didn't really apply myself in high school. And then I went to a community college because my dad told me either you're going to go to a community college and get your grades up or you're going to get a job for the city, which meant being like a garbage man or a post office worker. And I definitely didn't see myself doing that. I just never saw myself being like some average guy. Yeah. Um, like that you know i think my brother also says that in bigger stronger faster he didn't see himself being you know the average joe mm-hmm. so i didn't see that either for myself but i didn't really know what i saw i didn't have good grades or anything so i went and took this communications class and um these two friends of mine made uh they made a song they made like a rap song they were like hey we want to know if you can film a music video for us so i did that and um just sort of found a passion for it i made a music video and my teacher was like, how did you do this? You know, like he had no idea. And I'm like, oh, I snuck into the editing room at night. They, they had taught us some basic editing skills, but like I just went above and beyond and self-taught myself everything, how to edit and do stuff. And um, I made this video and it won, you know, this national contest. So um, <laughs> nice. I ended up get, getting flown to L.A. and being, you know, um, I was at this contest and Bob Saget was the one that was, uh, giving the awards out. So it was all kind of surreal to me. And, um, Bob Saget actually said to me, like, I know it probably doesn't mean that much that I voted for your video, but Francis Ford Coppola really loved your video. No way. Yeah. I was like, wait a second. Francis Ford Coppola was like a judge for this. And he's like, yeah, that's that's awesome. awesome. And I found out that like Kathleen Kennedy, who's like a producer for Spielberg, she was also a judge and stuff like that. And so, you know, right off the bat, I, you know, got rewarded for something that I did. Um, it was old school. It was like in a contest in a magazine, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. and, um, and I won and, uh, we, and basically from there, um, the woman who uh, was running the contest had told me like, well, you should, you know, do something with your talent. I think you should go to film school. And I just looked around and I said, well, what, you know, I, I always ask this question whenever I do anything is like, where's the best place? You know, like, I don't say like, oh, what's like the eighth best place to go to film school? Sure, in the world? Yeah. Like, it's go like, where's the best place? And people say, well, USC, but you'll never get in there. And when I, they add in like, you'll never get in there. That's like, you know, a, a total reason to try to get in there, mm-hmm. you know? 
And every time somebody says no, you were like, okay, cool. That's the place I'm going to go. And, um, and that's what I did. And I, um, applied to USC. I did everything I needed to do to get in. Um, and I got into the, to the university. My grades were good enough to get into the university, but I didn't get into the film school. Um, so they, they turned me down for the film school part of it. Um, but I was told like, Hey, if you're there at the school, you have a better chance of getting into the film school, you know, like in your second semester. So I just, you know, I just did what I had to do. I just went along with it. I went to school there. And uh, once I was there, they accepted me in the film school and the rest was history. Started making films from, from there in school. That's cool. What, what do you think is the driving force behind the creative mind? You know, cause, um, Whenever I see something, I'm, I'm always trying to figure out a way to tell that story. Even if I'm laying in bed at night, I'm trying to sleep. I'm constantly going over in my head, you know, what can I do with this? What can I do with that? Can I, you know, I don't know. I'm just constantly going. And I know there's other people. Obviously, there's other people like that. It's a very creative world. What do you think drives that in humans? You know what? I don't really know. I mean, I, the, the, the need to, um, like, create something and, and make something I think this comes out of like, for me, it comes out of like the experiences I have and then trying to like share them with other people so that, that it can help them. You know, I, I feel like, um, what, what drives me, uh, creatively is like what we all want. I think like we all want a pat on the back. Like I'm good at it. You know, yeah. like I don't think I'm, I'm talented with it. And if I can tell a story in, in a documentary or in a scripted format and, you know, make people laugh or cry or, um, care about something to me, that's like an accomplishment and the success. And I think that's all we're kind of looking for, right. Is like to be accepted, um, by other people, which is interesting because being creative in its own right is very introspective and very, um, introverted, you know, right. Like I, I'm like an introvert. Like I just hang out at my house all day by myself and work on shit. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's what I, that's what I do. And it's like, even when I'm at the gym, like, I don't even want to talk to anybody anymore. I just want to, like, be in my own zone. And, and like, I don't know what that is or, or why. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think I have, like, a need to create, to express myself on, like, a bigger level so that maybe I don't have to do it so much every day face to face. I, I don't know. But I feel like that's part of part of what drives me is, like, I'm I'm better at telling you a story all at once in a dark theater than I am, like, trying to tell you each individual person every day, you know? Sure. Um, the creative process itself, I mean, it's, you had brought up something there. Um, so like, it's a very, I guess, vulnerable place to be, if I can use that term, because you start with an idea and then you yourself, and I'm just assuming, I mean, but uh, beat the shit out of the idea until it's a fragment of the original idea. You know, this is what I want to do. And then you work on it and you work on it. And then you look at it again. You're like, what was I thinking? And you go back. And then when you finally get this thing done and you hope, um, you hope you're done. And I think this is where you, you kind of need a strong stomach. You put it out there for other people to see and then basically beat the shit out of. <laughs> and then you reattack yeah. and reattack. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's a rush. It's absolutely a rush. I think you get to a point where you don't care anymore. Like yeah. that's when I know a movie's done. Like for me where I'm like, you know what? Screw it. I'm done. Like I, I can't, there's nothing more I have to say about this or, you know what I mean? I, yeah. I just get, I get literally when you're making a documentary and we're making like bigger, stronger, faster, 
we were working on this so much. You just got, got sick of like, like it's got to end, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you put your foot down and sort of like, that's when you know you're done though. That's like a great point to be at. It's awesome to just say, Hey, I know that we're done. I know what I need to say here to button this up and finish it up. And, um, you know, I just did that on my most recent film, a leaf of faith. Like I had to, um, I just basically had to like finish it, you know? And I yeah. was uh, to a point where I just was like, all right, I'm going to like this week, I'm just going to nail it down and finish it. And I just went for it a hundred percent. Cause I knew that, um, what, you know, like I had as much time as I wanted to give myself. And I think that's the blessing and the curse of these documentaries. Mm-hmm. You have like as much time as you need, but you like, uh, like then certain times you got to hurry up, which is like weird. Cause you're like, you know, you'd be like waiting for months with nothing going on. And then all of a sudden you got to rush and get everything done at the last minute. Um, but that's just the way that it, that it goes. And you got to get used to that, you know, kind of tempo and that kind of speed. And like, that's the interesting thing on like telling a documentary is like, um, do you have the stomach to take the whole thing? You know, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I don't know, you're filming a documentary and you should definitely at certain, you know, some certain point you're like, Oh, I want to film for like two months and then, we'll be done. We'll just start editing and we'll, you know, whatever, but you film for two months and you realize you barely got anything and you film for like two more months. And, you know, then like you're like a year and a half into it and you realize like, well, we don't even have a movie yet. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that's when you realize like, Oh, this is going to be a real documentary because those real documentaries, you'll see that like things really transpire and happen um, because the filmmaker let it play out. Right. Or like a lot of times they didn't have a choice. They ran out of money. They did whatever. And like it just went on for five years for whatever reason. Yeah. I've seen documentaries that have gone on for like 29 years. And um, this one that I saw in uh, at Sundance, it was like incredible because things came around like 29 years later from the beginning of the movie. So we're like, holy shit. Like, I'm glad they took 29 years to make this because right. that would never happen that way otherwise, you know? Well, it was like... Um uh, Stephen Avery story there. I mean that they followed him for 10 years and just let it play out. Yeah. There was and, no- and if they didn't, if they didn't, it would have been like one night, you know, Dateline story or whatever. Now it's like probably the most popular documentary series ever. You know? Do you, um, with up and comers, uh, this is something that I've, I've just kind of noticed, uh, really in my patient base. Cause uh, I only interview I don't know, but people who are adults, I guess. But do you find that younger folks are afraid to fail? Like there's, and, and I hate being the old guy that says, oh, this damn generation, but um, are people, can they stomach the failure? Yeah. You know, I don't know. I mean, in some ways they're taught, like, you know, um, you know, we give people participation trophies and we're softer and easier on them and yeah. things like that. And people are like, ah, they're a bunch of wusses and things like that. But I also think, yeah, uh, kids are like a little bit more daring now in the way that they're out there expressing themselves and making money. Like Sean White was just on yesterday. He just won another gold medal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's 31 years old, but he was a millionaire by the time he was 20. And, um, you know, the way with, that we have with social media now and Instagram and stuff, I know like a lot of kids that are young that are killing it, like mm-hmm. making tons of money doing stuff like that. And I think that that's really uh, – interesting and intriguing and something inspiring for the younger generation to look at is they now have a platform like anybody can make themselves famous where like it used to be you had to go through like if you wanted to be famous and the famous actor 
<clears throat> back in the day, like when I grew up, you had to be the best looking guy that went through a talent agency that moved to Los Angeles that went on hundreds of auditions with their parents. And now all you got to do is be like a good looking kid on YouTube and somebody will find you, you know? Yeah. And so and we definitely have like a different uh, world. And so I, I don't know if they're afraid to fail, but I think they have more chances to be daring. And I think that they should uh, accept those and really, uh, really grasp onto those because I, I just know so many examples of uh, people of uh, so-called making it, uh, you know, off of their cell phone. You yeah. Know? So that's incredible. More examples of like, of that kind of um, thing. So I, I don't know. I'm kind of excited for the new younger generation. The one thing I, I like warn against, cause I don't understand it at all. I have a lot of friends that are like this. They're, they're literally, they're stars on Instagram. But if I hang out with them for like five minutes or more, I'm bored. You know, there's not much beyond a bunch of pictures, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and I think that that's something like, because we're always just swiping and scrolling and uh, my brother and I say a lot, like, what, what do you, what's somebody going to say about you when you die? Like, oh, that guy was a real scroller. He liked every photo I had. You know? like, <laughs> we're all just so attached to our phones and in our own la-la lands that we, we need to be present for each other and make time for each other and make time to talk to each other, you know? Yeah, we, were, we went to Rogan's show out here in, um, in Raleigh, and he made us put all our phones into bags, and then they locked them up. And at first, everyone was pissed. You know, they're like, what? Yeah. and then me and my wife are sitting down and we're looking around and everybody's talking. You know, no one's looking down. Everyone's communicating. During the entire show, there was not a single screen lit up. I mean, people were engaged and it, it meant, I mean, you could tell it, 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 it did a lot. And I think we're going to start seeing a trend like that. Yeah, it changes a lot. When, you know, and it's like, um, also, I, you know, I think it's like a, uh, when the, you have the audience bond like that, mm -hmm. it's just so different. You know, it's like uh, you get into a movie and you'll be, you'll be watching a movie. You'll be 10 minutes in and some kid will light up their phone and be texting in the middle of a movie. And yeah. It totally throws you out of that, that experience, sure. you know? Yeah. And it's just annoying. So like I, you know, I'm in total agreement with stuff like that. I think that sometimes we need to put our cell phones down and uh, talk to each other and love each other. Yeah, it was really, it was really, uh, it just made the experience that much better. Uh, I want to go back quickly on the the role of tech. Um, I, I think you're right. I think it's it's pretty much blown open the floodgates of creativity, right? Because people who who would otherwise have no access to things like cameras or you know collaboration with mentors, um, collaboration with like minded people, you know, now that that is available to them. Uh, I, I had a kid on last week that was talking about. The, he, he thinks that the formal education system is going to start taking a hit from this because people are going to realize that they can learn, they can collaborate, they can create without having to go through the formal process. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I think that's an in, interesting way to look at it. Like, if you could sit home and learn, that'd be awesome. But, like, mm -hmm. what does it do to us socially, you know? Right. Yeah, that's true. Another, another impact we have to look at. Like, if a kid... Uh, you know, we see what happens when kids are homeschooled. They, they're not really very socially, they're usually socially awkward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times. So we have to be careful of, uh, of technology taking over for, uh, everything we're learning. Uh, one thing, here's a question for you. Uh, and this is something that I've known just from being, a, a you know, I enjoy film. I enjoy, uh, podcasts, radio, show, whatever, any sort of outlet like that. What role do you feel that honesty plays w with talking with the audience? 
man, I think for documentaries, it's huge. I think um, you owe it to the audience. Um, well, first of all, whenever I do a movie, we have to fact check everything. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, I can't get insurance. So certain movies, I don't know how they get past that. Like I know um, the movie What the Health had a lot of like just false statements in it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or, you know, it's like I, I'd have to go back and look exactly how they um, – implied or bent the truth i'm sure like they word it all very carefully mm-hmm. when you go back and look at it but yeah there's there's a lot of um a lot of truth that goes into making documentaries and your audience needs to believe you so when you th- you know you're saying things like you know meat causes diabetes and cancer and stuff like that you're like you better be able to back that up yeah. and they can't they don't really back it up and they can't really back it up my job. so like i think I think like, you know, beyond the scope of, of the just that movie, it's like you just have to be honest with your audience. Your audience needs to be able to trust you because you're taking them on your ride and you're expecting them to, um, you know, to buy into it. And they have, you know, basically if they feel that you're full of shit. They have every reason to sort of jump ship on your story. So the best way to communicate your story is to be able to move the audience. And the best way to be able to move the audience is to relate to them. How has filmmaking, and I guess this kind of ties in with the honesty, because honesty to me also means, you know, especially when you turn the camera on yourself, which uh, bigger, stronger, faster. I mean, that was that was really it was a documentary about steroids, but it was also about your family. It was about you. Um, so, is there a line you draw? I guess this is for the audience. This is for me. Is there a line that your family says, okay, you know, you're, you're getting too honest. You're getting too open. Yeah, there's some stuff that probably that isn't in the movies you know there's like a couple like little things that um aren't in there that you know just basically like some sort of family history things or Mm -hmm. family wounds that you don't like don't really need to dig up for you know any reason like oh yeah i could say this but i don't really need to you know so like yeah there's probably a couple like little things but for the most part it's you know everybody's like an open book nobody really cares yeah uh you know, just like I said, some of the stuff is just to like basically like protect my mom from, you know, crying too much about stuff and <laughs> right. things like things like that. Like, and so you're not telling the whole story because of something like that. I don't see that as a bad as a bad thing. Um, but yeah, like yeah, there's just I would say maybe a couple little things that we didn't let out. But um, you know, most people that know us know know those things, and they don't really affect anything. So. Uh, I think that we're probably as open of a family as you'll find as far as like letting us film, whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, and then you're, you're, I guess in your inner circle, your friends and family, when you, uh, it sounds to me like they just accept it. They know that this is who you are. And, uh, and, and I guess there's a level of trust too with the, the subject. Yeah. I never really mess around with the camera. I, I'm not like always walking around with a camera either. I, I have a lot of, like I like to live life. I like to do things, hang out and stuff. So like, uh, yeah, I mean like there's a lot of other stuff to do, a lot of, uh, working out in between and a, you know, a lot of stuff like that where I don't have a camera and that's where you build the trust in those times, you know, when you're hanging out with people and getting to know people, um, that's where you build your trust. And then it's usually okay when you whip out a camera and nobody really cares. Yeah. Well, I was, um, I was a subject of a documentary about eight years ago. We, we, me and a group of disabled veterans rode our bike from, from, uh, 
gosh, it was L.A. No, not L.A. I'm sorry. Uh, San Francisco over to Virginia Beach. And it, awesome. it was strange. It was really, I mean, because majority of people, I guess nowadays it's a little more common to have, you know, cameras on you and stuff. But when someone is is trying to tell your story, it's a very, very awkward feeling. And then within about, it wasn't long, I want to say like two days, the camera almost just became another person there on the trip. You know? You, yeah, I never noticed that. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't care. And the, the guy who was making it, he just became another member of the the team, and and I don't know. It was uh, it was kind of a cool thing. How long was that uh, that trip? Oh, it took uh, sixty three days. Really? Yeah, and we we took our time. I mean, we had some guys with back injuries, we had some guys with um, amputees, brain injuries, all a lot of you know a big spectrum of injuries, and we had a lot of funding. We um we were sponsored by State Farm, and yeah, 63 days, I think. And if I can remember the numbers, uh, 123,000 feet of climbing. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other things. But yeah, uh, 4,000 miles, just under 4,000 miles. Wow, that's it, crazy. It was great. That's like, how long? 63 days? 63 days, yeah. And we wow. we would go, if, if I remember, man, I can't believe how long. It was 2010. But we would go for like a few days and then get a rest day and then go for a few days and get a rest day. But, um, I don't know. It was, it was an incredible trip. And there's some folks who do it a little more hardcore than us. <laughs> like we had hotels and we had interns and people, you know, carrying our stuff for us and, uh, they made it easier. But I mean, yeah, there's some folks that do that straight across. I mean, 30 days, maybe less. That's brutal, man. Yeah, it really was. And we didn't have any, any knowledge of, uh, this was before I was in medicine. We had no knowledge of what we were doing to our bodies. <laughs> I mean, day in and day out, just hammering on the the pedals, uh, 100 and some odd degree heat. Some days we would ride for 120, 140 miles. Wow. Wow. Did you feel like you, uh, did you bonk out at all? Yeah. I was having, I was having low blood sugar issues, which was weird. Um, so... I had never really been a long distance guy. I'd always been like in high school, I threw javelin or, and I sprinted and I wrestled. And I, I guess to some extent wrestling can be, <laughs> I guess it is a lot, endurance, but never just trudging along. It's always more like sprinting, resting, sprinting, resting. Well, when I would just, you know, pedal on and on after like a third hour, I, my blood sugar would just go down to like 60, 50. And I would have to, and what sucked is that from that point on, I was like stuck to glucose to get myself to the end. It would be like every 15 minutes, I'm just pouring glucose into my system to keep my body going. Yeah, that's what happens. You need to. Right? Yeah. Yeah. They, they say that, you, um, that they use like that goo and stuff like that. And, oh, yeah. Uh, I heard somebody talking about it and they're like, where in like nature would that ever happen? Exactly. You know, like, yeah. It's like weird carbohydrate goo. Yeah, they were, my favorite was, um, I want to say it was like espresso, espresso. So it had, I don't remember how many grams of, of caffeine with it, plus that that sugar and this kind of chocolate. Oh, I, thought, I thought it was good. Stinger bars, stinger bars and another yeah. one that, that were great. Yeah, all that like high carb stuff was mm -hmm. like the, all the rage. And now you're seeing, uh, you know, that you can only store up to 2,000 calories if you're storing uh, glucose or carbs. Okay. But you can store up to 40,000 calories if you're talking about fat. Oh, sure. So, yeah, you're, you're just much better off being fat adapted and being able to uh, use your own body fat because 
you can literally go forever on uh, endurance activities because you're just running on fat. So yeah. like once you're actually running on fat and your body can tap into that body fat, you're basically all set. You can just go forever, you know? Yeah. I, I'd wish I'd known that before that. But, I mean, I was... I don't want to say I was young. I think I was like 32, 33, something like that. Most but, people don't know. Yeah. No, yeah, I had no clue. Um, you know, I did I did a keto diet for years without knowing any of the benefits or why I was doing it or anything. So, like, I don't claim that, like, you know, oh, yeah, I knew, you know, I knew all this stuff all along. It's like, I just, I knew about it and I did it, but I wasn't really sure mm-hmm. how, why or how it was working until all these other people came along and did all the research, you know, so... We, uh, we live and we learn. I think it's important. Yeah. yeah. And, and simplifying things, too. Uh, one thing in medicine that I always thought, I, I don't want to say always thought, that I've just kind of, uh, what do they call it, red-pilled? I got red-pilled over the last maybe six months to a year, is that we look at, we, we look at disease processes within, say, a 75-year gap. And then we say, okay, you know, we're, we're seeing rising numbers of this or rising numbers of that. Okay, so let's look within the lens of that 75 years and figure out ways to fix it. You know, this medicine can treat that. This medicine can treat this. And it, it seems, I think the term would be myopic. Like we're not, if we just pull back a little bit and say, hey, you know, for 200,000 years, we did just fine, you know, working in this manner. And I, I don't understand why in medicine or or in the just medical paradigm, why that isn't a more common thing. That's considered on the outskirts. That's actually a dangerous ter- territory to even tread. You can lose your yeah. license. Yeah, a lot of people do, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's and, and as a practitioner, it's frustrating because, yeah, I want to do the right things for my patients. Uh, but, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it's like, well, what's the right thing? You know, do I, it, it's, it's very hard. So how do you end up balancing that? Uh, it's tricky. Um, it's real tricky. So, so I, I work in a uh, clinic that is outside the realm of insurance, which is nice. So I don't really have to justify much, you know, I don't have to justify spending an hour with a patient. I also was hired to take care of, uh, county employees down in North Carolina. So there's a group of employees that can come see me for anything. So I have a lot of leeway that I otherwise wouldn't have. And, and a lot of that leeway comes with me just sitting down, being an ear for an hour, you know, learning how to listen to people, um, yeah. finding out where their struggles are, and then just guiding them. Uh, and then, you know, I, I, I have to back up my, my uh, recommendations, but as long as you're, and, and this is what I think, as long as you can back them up with the science and say, you know, this study showed this and this study showed that and this person's issue is that their blood sugar is high and their metabolism is all screwed up and that perhaps trying a six-month or three-month metabolic reset would be a good way to go. And then I think slowly you just kind of get people into into that realm. And some people it's just, man, it's like... I think you find resistance uh, in a lot of ways whenever you try a nutritional intervention you're going to get resistance from both the patient and from the medical community. Oh, sure. You know, like that's the hardest part is, um, getting people to commit to it. Uh, it's easy to get somebody to take a pill every day. Oh yeah. Yeah. And once you, once you, you know, once you see the, and I hate to sound like, you know, like a guru or something, but once you see the truth to, to medicine, 
Uh, and I love, I guess I love that term, that meme about being red pilled, you know, uh, going from the matrix coming out into the real world. Yeah. It, it, it totally clarifies everything you've ever dealt with when it comes to dealing with patients. So like we were watching the Super Bowl and um, Cedric the Entertainer was on talking about his diabetic foot pain or something like that. And he's taught, and I don't remember what the commercial was for, what drug it was for, whatever, but he's going to all these people and they're all talking about their foot pain and which drug they should use. And I'm thinking, this is madness. This is madness to, to sit there and just keep hitting these disease processes with more drugs and more drugs when we yeah. should be talking about, hey, how about not using medicine? You know, how about, how about getting off of those and just going back to the way your ancestors were? And, and it's proven, it's proven that you can take these people who have sugars out of control and bring them down to a normal level just by minor adjustments to their diet. Yeah, and it's crazy that you you know by um, you know saying there's some sort of medical, uh, some sort of nutritional intervention mm-hmm. is necessary or warranted is uh, kind of crazy. But like you know, but if you're selling a pill, if there's a pill to sell, it's okay. And yeah. I think that's a big problem is that um, we're never going to get away from the capitalism there. We're never mm-hmm. going to get away from the problem of like you know, big pharma wants to make a lot of money, and the best way to make a lot of money is to sell a lot of drugs. And the best way to sell a lot of drugs is Cedric the Entertainer and people like that. Yeah. And saying that you have gout or whatever. And having sick people, you know. Uh, I mean, I hate to say it. It's kind of going down the conspiracy path, but sick people pays the bills, especially if you're spending all that money making medicine. Yeah, it's really hard to justify in, you know, anything pharmaceutical without like having a pill or having having a product and I, you know, I get that it makes sense and it's, it's a uh, business, but mm-hmm. it's insane to me how many people are on, you know, completely unnecessary drugs, you know, like statin drugs for, um, the most part for, yeah, for cholesterol, like a big part of statin drugs are unnecessary, you know, overprescribed a big part of our antidepressants, you know, not all of them, but a lot of them are overprescribed. Oh, they, um, they are especially I- in the veteran communities, you know, and, and, um, they're just things that we can avoid. Like we, you know, if we ate better, we could avoid a lot of these issues. A lot of, um, you know, all disease begins in the gut. Hippocrates said a long time ago, and he was right. Like all this stuff, you know, we are what we eat and all that stuff. That's all true. You mm-hmm. know? So, um, if you're eating like shit, you're going to feel like shit. And if you're depressed and bummed out and you're eating Oreos every day, well, the Oreos might have something to do with it, you know? Yeah. I think people need to start looking at that kind of stuff because a lot of people, they don't even realize that their nutrition can be connected to, like I said, you know, with my cousin and all of his uh, reversals that he's had on his diet, um, he had no idea that nutrition could do anything to help him, you know? Yeah, which is remarkable. And until he knew, you know, and he's got a cousin that's, you know, entrenched in it every day. Mm-hmm. And um, although he saw me on Instagram or whatever, he, until he actually was hanging out with me in person, he never really got it. You know, yeah. like, oh, this is what you do. You actually do eat meat every, <laughs> you know, every meal. Okay, I get it. I'm gonna do it too. You know, and so um, sometimes people just need a little bit of uh, inspiration to get going. And if I can provide that, I'm happy to all the time. You know? The other thing too is is it's a phenomena that the disease state tends to carry with it a burden of shame. 
You know, I, I always tell my patients, so I, like I said, I deal a lot with, with obesity. And I tell them from the very get-go, I'm like, this, this isn't your fault. You can take that shame and all that guilt and everything you're just kicking the shit out of yourself for. Um, I had a guy on a few weeks ago named Jason Sieb, fantastic um, uh, author. He, he wrote a book called, um, I think it was Body Beliefs. And he said, picture going up to a little girl, little six-year-old girl and saying, you are worthless. You are disgusting. You know, whenever you walk into a room, people dislike you just because of the way you look, right? No one would ever do that. All you would set her up for is failure. Yet that conversation goes on in the mind of something like 90% of women who look in the mirror every day. Only, yeah. only 2% of American women, when they did a survey, said that they thought they were attractive. Wow. Which is a, and, and so I have these people come to me and they say, well, this is what I did to myself and this is what I keep doing to myself and I'm a bad person because of it. And it's like, no, no, you were brought up in a society that, that taught us that this, is, this was the way to live. I mean, we grew up at the same time. Um, commercials with sports stars drinking Orange Crush or um, Pop-Tarts and I mean, everything was just sugar, sugar, sugar. And we're seeing the repercussions of it. And what people yeah, don't, what people don't understand, that. what's that? We're bombarded with it every day. Yeah. And what people don't understand is that, that obesity is, I tell people to picture fat like a tumor. And the tumor needs to be fed. And it's going to steal everything that you're eating and to some extent, except obviously uh, low carbohydrate, high uh, uh, fat, high protein, or medium protein. But for the most part, with your diet, your, your tumor is going to steal all that energy. So these people come in at 400 pounds, and they are at the cellular level, they are starving to death. They are hungry. They are tired. Their metabolism is gone. And I tell, I tell people all the time, your body's always hunting for nutrients. And when mm -hmm. you're giving it non-nutrient-dense food, it's going to store that as fat. Yeah. And then um, still hunt for the nutrients. So you're still looking for, you know that protein and the, you know, whatever else you need, all the vitamins and minerals, your body's going to be like hunting for that until it finds it. And it's not going to find it in a whole box of Oreos. So you'll eat those and think nothing of it because yeah. it doesn't do anything to fill you up or doesn't do anything to uh, take away your hunger, you know, it, because it's not nutrient dense and it's not nutrient dense on purpose. And that's what a lot of people need to understand. Yeah, it's well, it doesn't trigger those. I, I, I give people the notion of put four pork chops in front of you on your plate, right? You might be able to get through two, but stack yeah. up stack up six pieces of pizza and I could crush that very quickly. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's so um it's pretty easy to see that, you know, um why you know, why people can overconsume um all these foods, but it's you know, it's uh there's they they make them so they that you overconsume them just like the drugs they make the drugs be addictive sure they make the foods to be addictive so that you overconsume them i was actually just listening to a podcast with a guy named michael moss mm -hmm. who wrote a book called sugar salt fat that talks about how addictive um all the food is in the country and how you know frito lay spends 30 million dollars a year on um perfecting you know making doritos as addictive as possible so that you eat more of them and like coca-cola they don't they don't label the, their um consumers as like you know heavy consumers they call them heavy users so wow. it's like 
they label their own consumers within the industry as like drug, you know, like almost like drug users. So, um, you know, that everything's designed for us to fail uh, when it comes to food. And we just have to fight that in order to in order to win the battle of the bulge. Well, we're we're in a paradigm shift. Uh, I feel it. I'm just waiting to see it. Uh, extend across the country. I hope it will. I still, I still think everybody's so damn confused about this organic craze. Yeah. <laughs> just to put any, like anything to rest, it's like organic doesn't like that doesn't make anything healthier. The thing is when you ingest carbohydrates, all of the carbohydrates you ingest, no matter what it is, if it's organic, if it's natural, if it's high fructose corn syrup, it doesn't really matter that all turns to glucose in your body mm-hmm. and like people need to understand that. So like, I'm not saying that it's bad. We need glucose for certain functions in our body. I'm not saying that it's bad, but every carb you put in your body is going to turn to glucose and people just need to know that. So the less sugar that we put in our body, I think the healthier that will be. Um, and the leaner, the leaner will run, you know? Yeah. Well, so we had a uh, a nutritional discussion with a little bit of creativity in the middle. Works for me. Yeah, a little bit of everything, <laughs> man. Why not? Just throw around everything. Uh, what's well? I would ask what's next on your plate, but I know you're just getting uh, Leaf of Faith out the door. Uh, when when well, is it going to be released? I'll tell you what's going on. I'm I'm working on a movie called The War on Carbs with my brother. We're going around filming that. Nice. And that's basically all about the nutrition stuff that we talked about. Okay. Um, it'll be fun and in depth and like sort of in the spirit of bigger stronger faster um and then uh a leap of faith will be out may 29th so i'm working on one for uh next year and uh, yeah may 29th a leap of faith about kratom will be out and mm-hmm. um kratom is a really interesting uh thing you know another thing i stumbled upon to try to help people you know it's just a natural occurring opioid um, a lot of people are scared of the word opioid, but it's just something that um, hits your opioid receptors, actually makes you just feel really good. Yeah. Uh, for me, it takes me out of pain. I take it every day for pain. I still consider myself sober. Um, you know, I don't get high off of Kratom or anything like that. Um, I think, you know, if you take a huge amount of Kratom, you can definitely get, you know, this mental stimulation that might um, feel like you're high, but you'd have to take so much of it that you just, you know, it's, there's, there's other repercussions. So I just don't think it's worth it. So I actually think it's a great plant and it's, um, it goes the way of harm reduction. No one's ever died on Kratom and, um, 300,000 people have died on prescription painkillers in the United States alone Wow. Uh, in the past 10 years. So, you know, you have 300,000 to, to zero. Uh, I, I think it's a way for, uh, pain, management and um and uh you know also uh just reduction of harm for a lot of people yeah fascinating uh you said that's going to be out the 29th of may yeah may 29th should be on like netflix and itunes and everywhere like that i'm not sure exactly where it's coming out yet we haven't uh, finished all those plans but everything's being worked on right now all right cool well uh thanks for sharing your time with me man i had a good conversation anytime man all right appreciate it all right take care like us on facebook.com slash wwi podcast and at wwi podcast on twitter drop us a line at wait what is podcast at yahoo.com
Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher or TuneIn Internet Radio. your listening experience. Now go forth and expand your reality. 